there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. We know we leak force through negative emotions. How else and how much force do we leak in a day? As machines go, we're leaky faucets. People don't think of a faucet as a machine necessarily, but it is. Think of all the machines that are involved in a faucet. You have a lever, you have a fulcrum, you have a screw. You have a lot of machines involved in this faucet. And then it's also, it also becomes hydraulic in the sense that when you unscrew the faucet with the lever, it makes way for water to come up through, and then it traverses this channel and comes out. If one faucet in your home drips, and drips have been measured, then there's no standard for a drip, actually. But taking an average in the drips that are measured from faucets, we find that a quarter of a milliliter is an average drip from an average faucet. So let's say that you have one faucet in your home that drips one quarter milliliter every second. So it drips 60 drips in a minute. That equals five gallons of water per day. That's not a lot. For our European friends, that's 21 liters per day, which sounds like more, doesn't it? Because they pay for a liter of gasoline, what we pay for a gallon. Seems so unfair, doesn't it? Except that we don't think it's unfair. We think we pay too much, and we don't really care what they pay. Oops, the truth slipped out. The ugly truth of who we are has just slipped out. That's 2,082 gallons a year. We have many more leaky faucets in our three-story house than one. The question is, how else and how much do we leak in a day? When I played classic guitar, practice very often made my hands ache. Why? In work, jargon, wrong use of centers. Playing classic guitar, not practicing, but playing when I would just sit and play, did not have that effect on my hands. Why? I was using right center to play, but the wrong centers to practice. My teacher told me I was wasting force or energy by pressing too hard on the strings. Then he showed me how he did it. He pressed only enough to fret the string and stop it from buzzing, and never anymore. He wanted me to practice this way. Instead, I continued to let the intellectual center continue to practice. I thought about doing it right instead of doing it right. That's the wrong use of a center. I thought about doing it right instead of doing it right. This could become your mantra. <laughs> I thought about doing it right instead of doing it right. And this is what we do, until finally we imagine that we're doing it right. Anyone who has played guitar knows that one of the things that people get on the ends of the fingers of their left hand, if they are left-handed, is calluses from pressing on the strings, from fretting the strings. And one of the other things is that until you get calluses, the fingertips can get really sore, really sore, painfully sore. And essentially, it is from pressing too hard which is what beginners do. And unfortunately, most people never get beyond the stage of beginners with classic guitar. They just never get beyond the stage of beginners. There are very few masters because it takes right use of force and it takes working in the right center. And we don't know how to do that because our machines are wired wrong. They're out of order. They're connected wrong. 
And because the centers are connected wrong, we use the wrong center for a job. So what this talk is about is how we leak force through wrong use of centers. We squander force by using the wrong center for a task. Here's an example from our own darling Diana, counting how many sesame seeds in a teaspoon to make gamashio. You probably don't remember how many sesame seeds in a teaspoon, do you? 326 sesame seeds in a teaspoon. And do you remember what the formula was for the gamashio? 7 to 1 or 12 to 1 or something like that? So you had to have 12 (coughs) teaspoons of sesame seeds, toasted sesame seeds, to 1 teaspoon of sea salt, ground in a surabachi to make gamashio, sesame salt. And Diana, religiously, intellectually, figured that she had to have 12 or 7 sesame seeds to one whatever, God only knows how many grains of salt she thought she had to have, to one grain of salt. I don't think she got as far as to count how many grains of salt were in a teaspoon. No? That's good. But you see, that's the perfect example of using the wrong center to do something, to do a task. We could easily say, oh, but she misunderstood. Yes, that's right, because she was in the wrong center. Ospensky told Gurdjieff, people are turning into machines. People no longer think. They become almost perfect machines in some small way and are content to be so. If they really thought, they'd cease to be perfect small machines. Yes, that's true. Gurdjieff had a greater understanding than Ospensky at that time, but he agreed with Ospensky and added, you must remember man has more than one mind. This is the first thing we forget. We forget that that person over there is not one. We forget that that person over there has more than one mind. Why do we forget that? Simply because we have forgotten that we're not one, And we have forgotten that we have more than one mind. This is what causes us to forget about the other guy over there, is we have already forgotten ourselves. So it's easy to transfer that ignorance to others. Gurdjieff outlined the importance of using right mind or the right center for a task in which you're engaged. Using the right mind enables us to think better in the midst of all work with machines. So what? I'm not working in a factory with a bunch of machines. Oh, yes, you are. As a matter of fact, if you don't ever work with another person, you're still working in a factory with a whole bunch of machines. And you are the factory, and all those little machines are how you operate your centers and parts of centers. We are a great, complex machine made of many smaller machines. All must work together properly, harmoniously, if we are to be efficient and develop our full potential. Why is it necessary to be efficient to develop our full potential? Because it takes force to develop our full potential. How much force does it take? All of it. Well, what's all of it? We don't know. We are squandering so much of it. We have so many leaky faucets. We don't know. When do we take the time to measure a drip and to say, okay, it's a quarter of a milliliter, and if it drips every second, that's five gallons per day, 21 liters, or 2,082 gallons per year. What about the next faucet that's dripping? What about the next faucet? What about the faucet upstairs? What about the faucet downstairs? What about the faucet over there? That's dripping too. We are leaky faucets, plural. We are, I am leaky faucets. Say it with me. I am leaky faucets. Right, that's more at what I'm talking about. I am leaky faucets. Not, we are leaky faucets. I am leaky faucets, plural. One large problem with self-observation is using the wrong center. Gurdjieff said to someone looking at a flower bed, you think, I only look. One of the things about Gurdjieff that I love is that succinct simplicity. I find that often in great teachers. Bennett said of Gurdjieff, he was more than a teacher and less than a master. I don't know anything about that because I never met Gurdjieff, but I find it interesting. And there's something inside me that resonates with that as a note, rings with a note of truth. 
Intellectual center is a big leaky faucet. When I say intellectual center, of course, I don't mean the intellectual center, do I? What do I really mean? Formatory apparatus. For us, that's what intellectual center is. For us. That doesn't mean it's that way for you all the time, but it's that way for you enough of the time to, if we're going to speak in general, to say, for us, when we say intellectual center, what we mean is formatory apparatus. That bit that goes likes, dislikes, yes, no, hot, cold, black, white, up, down, just goes back and forth. Mostly, it's wide open rather than dripping. Mostly, that leaky faucet is squirting force. It's just lost any drip at all. It's just wide open. We try to see beauty through the formatory center. This is what Gurdjieff was really saying. He was saying, look, you're looking at those flowers. You're trying to see beauty through your formatory center. I just look. I don't allow the formatory center to get involved in the process of direct observation. Unfortunately, if you have ever observed something in yourself with chagrin, observed something in yourself and felt hopeless, depressed, sad, or the myriad negative emotions that can come with that, you have allowed formatory apparatus to observe. You're not observing yourself. Formatory apparatus is observing for you. That is not self-observation. You're imagining that you're observing yourself. You're not, because that is not proper self-observation. That's not what this work is talking about. That is self-observation with the wrong use of the center. Emotional beauty is different than intellectual beauty. Intellectual beauty is weighed, compared, measured. The Mona Lisa is beautiful compared to not Mona Lisa. The color is that color compared to not that color. Emotional beauty is different. We tend to attach importance to things that are unimportant, which causes us to attach little importance to greater things. We have a skewed sense of importance because our values are all wrong. Our values need to be changed. Our values can't be changed unless our attitudes are changed because our values come from our attitudes. Our attitudes can't be changed until our thoughts are changed because our attitudes are frozen thoughts. So we need to change the way we think. This isn't easy. It's like trying to stop a speeding freight train with a feather. It's not easy, but it can be done if you know how to do it and if you're patient. And it's going to take a while, but it can be done. Of course, all this comes from not knowing what to value, which comes from allowing the five senses to direct our valuation. What is valuable? Whatever the five senses say is valuable. What do the five senses say is valuable? Whatever everyone else says is valuable. Whatever everyone else is running after, that must be it. How does the saying go? If the earth were made of gold, a man would die for a handful of dirt. And there you have it. Why? Because everyone else values it, it must be valuable. We are allowing the five senses to dictate value. The five senses don't know, and neither do the people who are attached to the five senses. Who does know? Those who have freed themselves from the five senses, who are they? The work calls them the conscious circle of humanity. Religions call them saints and masters, gurus and devas, whatever. It doesn't matter what you call them. They are people who found out that the five senses were liars and they withdrew their attention from them. And they put their attention on something else, something higher, something that the five senses didn't tell them about, something that the five senses don't know anything about and can't know anything about. What is taking all your force? You have a general answer for that general question in your life today. What is taking all your force? Do you have the answer? Good. Is it important? The answer is <laughs> Oh, the answer is important. But is what is taking all your force important? Then it's taking all your force. You're not giving it. Except that you are giving it because you are valuing it when it has no value because you are making important what is unimportant which makes you fail to take as important what is truly important. 
Again, esoteric work is a matter of subtraction rather than addition. We're not adding anything to ourselves. We are going through the long, tedious, and often extremely painful process of subtracting from ourselves. That's what purification is. Purification is subtraction, not addition. You don't purify water by adding more dirt. You purify water by filtering it out. And the more you filter it, the more pure it becomes. My guitar teacher wanted me to subtract force, not add it. But in our world, we think that force is the answer to everything. Well, if it won't open, just use a little more force. Or one of the ways to put it is, well, if it doesn't work, get a bigger hammer. Knock it with a bigger hammer. I can't tell you how many times I have watched construction people break things using more force when they should have been using more intelligence. They were using the wrong center for the job, and they broke it. And I've seen people do it again and again and again. Not just with the same thing. They'll break that, and then they'll go on and break something else. Then they'll break that and go on and break something else. Then they'll go on, and a couple of things will work, and they don't break anything. Then they're called good workers. They break everything all the time. They're fired. We're learning how not to do unnecessary things. It's not necessary to judge, to identify, to fret, to pine, or to grieve when we observe ourselves. It is not necessary. It needs to be eliminated. We need to subtract that from our self-observation. But it's so hard. Yes, it is so hard because we make important what is unimportant. And then we have no importance left for the things that are really important because we've squandered all of our force in what is unimportant. We're leaky faucets. Say it with me. I am leaky faucets. (laughs) Maurice Nicole said, Many people think beauty can only be seen through theories. Theories are intellectual. There are beautiful theories. Absolutely beautiful theories. The film Beautiful Mind comes to mind. And I think that he really could get into some beautiful theories. Wasn't he mad? Schizophrenic or something? Einstein was another one for beautiful theories. They were gorgeous. I mean, people who know about theories and formulas... You know, in physics, they look at them and, oh, that's beautiful. That's just a beautiful formula. It's so beautifully designed. It's so beautifully laid out. It's so, and it really is intellectually beautiful. So when Nicole said, many people think beauty can only be seen through theories. Theories are intellectual. Beauty is emotional and also instinctive. Let's face it, people. There is an instinctive beauty. You can find a number of people all of a sudden, you'll see them standing watching a sunset. Just all, everybody just standing. Actually, I watch my cats. My cat will go and watch the sunset, sit out on the porch and just watch the sunset. I've seen it happen enough times that I finally thought, you know, I think this cat is actually watching the sunset. It's an instinctive thing. And let's face it, instinctively it's beautiful. When he says that beauty is emotional and also instinctive, what he's saying really is, don't think about it, do it. And that's what I think about self-observation. Don't think about it, do it. You see that when you start thinking about it, you've involved the intellectual center. And then what that really means is you've involved formatory apparatus, which means you've involved judgment, which means you've involved yes, no, hot, cold, good, bad, right, wrong, up, down, black, white. Just do it without thinking about it. But how will I know if I'm doing it right? I just asked you not to do that. (laughs) That is nothing more than formatory apparatus, the truant brat that won't come to class but has enough gall to keep interrupting class with meaningless questions. Moving center is a good place to fix leaky faucets. You know, most people's necks aren't short. The reason they look short is because they're holding their arms up with their shoulders. Have you ever caught yourself holding your arms up with your shoulders? I have. I've caught myself doing that. Well, stop that. Are you holding tension anywhere right now? Let it go. I catch myself every once in a while pursing my lips. Stop that. 
You're wasting force. This is a good place to start. Stop the leaks here. Just stop the physical leaks in the moving center. Just practice there. That's what meditation is supposed to be. Is it? No. We stop all the leaks. During meditation, we fall asleep. For us, we need a little bit of tension. We don't know how to do it any other way. We completely relax. We go to sleep. The reason we do that is because our minds do not belong to us. We belong to our minds. That can change. Needs to change. Will change if you practice. But it won't change if you don't. It's not going to give up its throne without a fight. Doesn't mean you have to fight. It just means it won't give up without a fight. Reminds me of Aikido. It's the martial art where you don't use any force. You simply use whatever force your attacker is directing at you. And you use it to let it go by. You just let it go by. So you let your attacker attack. You just get out of the way. And his own force becomes what defeats him. And that really is the way to deal with the mind. But that's easier said than done. And it takes some practice. But have you got something else to do? Well, yes, I've got to get to work, and I've got to do this, and I've got to fix lunch. and I've... Yes, we always take the important things and make them unimportant, and we take the unimportant things and make them... Are you saying that eating is unimportant? Yes, I'm saying that it is less important than this. Are you saying that work is unimportant? Yes, I'm saying it is less important than this. And if you would get out of your formatory apparatus, you would stop making it either or. You would stop making it black and white. And you would see that everything has its right place. And your job is to put it in its right place. But you can't do that from formatory apparatus. So get out of there. Notice how you walk. Most people don't count their steps to see what it will cost to go that way. Fortunately, having a leg amputated at the age of 19 has made me very aware of walking. So for, oh, 43 years, I have been aware of walking. And when I say aware of walking, I mean it's painful to walk. Sometimes it's more painful than other times. Sometimes it's less painful. But it's never natural. We're not meant to walk on a stick. We're meant to walk on our legs. When you don't have one, you do the next best thing. You strap a stick to what's left and you learn to walk. And you also learn to count steps. You also learn to estimate. You look at the ground and you see, is it level? Is it smooth? Does it have rough spots, bumps? Is it sloped? Which direction is it sloped? What is on the ground? Is it sandy? Is it gravelly? Is it slippery? Is it something that is going to be easy because your ankle won't bend? So how do you make your way across that? All these things go into my calculation of where I'm going, even if it's to get up and walk to the other side of the room. Do you do that? No. You take for granted. That's all. You just take it for granted. Fortunately, I don't. When I say fortunately, I mean it has forced a certain amount of awareness on me. And for that, I'm grateful. Now, there are lots of things that I could not be grateful for. But why bother? When I can find one thing to be grateful for, it's amazing how that washes away so many things that I could be ungrateful for or that I could complain about. We make all sorts of complex movements habitually, walking stiffly in quick agitation or lingering reluctance or mindless wandering. I pick walking because it's real for me. It's something that I have to do with attention. And attention is a good thing to direct. It's a good place for us to start directing attention. Notice how many of your movements are ritualistic. How many people stand up like an old man or an old woman? Oh, my back, it's stiff, or our legs, or our knees, or whatever. And we do it automatically, ritualistically. We do it without thinking, is this necessary now? Well, let's face it, there are times when you stand up and it doesn't hurt. But you don't know that. We very often stand up as if it was going to feel the same way the last time we stood up or 10 times ago when it hurt. I got to tell this even though it's, okay, I'll, I'll do it this way. A certain person, when they move something, always made this certain sound. Oof, 
And they had a parrot. And the parrot, every time the person would go to move this, the parrot learned to go, oof. The person thought one day, do I say oof that much? And the parrot said, oof, which of course is parrot for yes. It's also life speak for yes. It's the universe saying yes to your question. But we, we get to see these things in ways that we don't really expect. These are gifts. Call them gifts from God, if you will, blessings from the Almighty, that you get a parrot that goes, oof, when you're moving something. How are you like Buddy Love when he turns in circles and paws the cushion before he settles down? What are your ritualistic movements? Remember, we're just talking about stopping some leaks, some leaky faucets in the moving center. That's all we're talking about. We're just talking here. Nothing to get upset about. Nicole tells the story of a man in France. When the pigs got into the tomatoes, he walked very slowly to avoid identifying and muscle tension. And he told Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff roared and fairly leapt 400 yards to the pigs, roared at the guy. You idiot! And they got the pigs out of the tomatoes. Are you starting to get the idea? What the man was doing was the wrong use of a center. It was not the time to be measuring your steps and making sure that you did everything without identifying and making sure that you didn't have any tension in your body as you put this foot down and as you lifted this foot and as your arms moved and your shoulders dropped and your head just floated above your torso as if it were attached by a string from the top. That's great exercise. But when the pigs are in the tomatoes... Get them out. If the house is on fire, get out and observe your moving center some other time. I know you laugh as if this is something that's so obvious, but think about what you do. And they'll laugh because you do it. We've got to know what's important, but we've also got to know when it's important. In order to do that, we have to be here. And we can't be here when we're somewhere else. And our mind always has us somewhere else. So we've got to change the way we think. Intelligence in the esoteric sense is being able to think relatively. Third force connects us with the event. In case of the pigs and the tomatoes, the man was using a very low intelligence to connect himself to the event. Yet, he imagined it to be a very high type of intelligence, didn't he? He imagined himself really being awake, really being thoughtful, really applying the work. But Gurdjieff didn't agree. Why is that? Because the man had no sense of scale, he had no sense of importance. The tomatoes were so that you could eat, so that you could live to work. Let the pigs eat the tomatoes and die and you can't work. A sense of scale will help you to value what's valuable, to see what's important when it's important. But he was chasing the geese one day. Here we come for another example from our dear devoted people. But he was chasing the geese one day. Laura used the wrong center to deal with it. She thought when she should have moved. And that's more often what we do. We think. We use the intellectual center or formatory apparatus instead of the center that we need to be using. Now, there are times when we use the moving center when we should use the thinking center. Example, well, trying to catch a falling knife. That's using the moving center when you should be using the intellectual center. Trying to catch a burning log falling out of the fireplace with your bare hands, that's using the moving center, the instinctive center, when you should be using the intellectual center. So what Lori ended up doing was screaming at the top of her lungs, screaming, a blood-curdling scream, buddy. It was so frightful that the girls, neighbors, came out onto the balcony. Oh, they were just like in the drama of the whole thing. Is he all right? Oh, oh. And it was just like a wildfire 
spreading through the neighborhood. And I said, Lori, just go over there and get him. Lori walked over and got his leash and pulled him away. She pulled him away. I went over and got the goose. He didn't hurt the goose, but the goose was absolutely at death's door. It had totally surrendered. It knew this was it. It was going to die, so it just surrendered. And it took me a good five minutes to get the goose to even move after that because that's what they do. They run and run and run until they're cornered, they're trapped, and the end is there, and then they just surrender. Very unlike us. We run and run and run until the end is near, and then we run some more. We run with our last breath. How many people have you seen die? How many people? A lot. How many of them ran with their last breath? Quite a few. Quite a few. Would you say most? most? Most. People are not prepared for death. The goose was prepared for death. We're not. And that's why we're alive, so that we can prepare for death. People don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that because they think it's morbid. I don't think it's morbid at all. I think it's preparation. You are going to die. Be ready. If we don't live life easily with few duties, we won't have an inner relaxation and will react from the wrong center. You can never hope to respond from the right center if you're not internally relaxed, if you're not internally at harmony and at peace. We leak force through the wrong efforts, especially the effort to avoid effort. It is so sad to see how much we effort to avoid effort. Because we live in an intelligent universe, we must find out what efforts give results. We certainly know, if we look at it objectively, we can certainly see the efforts that we make that don't give results. Worry, fretting, negative emotions, these don't give the results we want, but we continue to do them. But I can't help it. That's right, you can't help it, because it's a habit. But you can make a new habit to replace that habit. And you do that by changing your thinking. If you don't find for yourself where you're leaking, all this remains theory, and you'll miss the beauty of this path. If this path isn't beautiful for you, you are missing what is right in front of you. You are not beholding emotionally, directly, the beauty of this path. I suggest that you work on beholding the beauty of this path. Let these other things that are unimportant fall away. You need evaluation. Evaluation is going to come from your emotional center. If you can see the beauty of the path, your emotional center will begin to awaken and you will place valuation on what is valuable. You'll place importance on what is important. And these other things will slowly, slowly, don't worry about it, it won't all be ripped away from you, ripped out of your bosom, ripped out of your pockets, ripped out of your hands. Slowly, they'll be subtracted and you'll be freed. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.